when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. How do you do, fellow internet? It is Monday, October 15th, and you are listening to Waypoint. Well, I can't do Austin's thing. You are listening to Waypoint Radio episode... I think it's 195. I guess I am doing Austin's thing because I don't know 100%. I, what I think you're we're right. <laughs> anyway, I'm your host, uh, Rob Zachney, filling Are in you? capably, I would say, for Austin Walker. <laughs> and joining me today is Patrick Re- uh, Patrick Klepek. Who? <laughs> Did you take my name, Patrick? We got married? Apparently. I'll just, Is that I'll, what happened? I'll, I'll, it's I'll a very wife, special no. episode of Waypoint Radio. <laughs> <laughs> episode 195 or 194, not sure which. I think it's 195. I'm yeah. pretty sure. Let's just, it's, this is going to be a lost episode. We're going to delete it anyway. So Anyway, that was Patrick Klepek. <laughs> Thanks, uh-huh. Patrick. You're welcome. We're also joined by Danielle Riendo. Hi, hello. How you doing? Uh, there's a lot on my mind. There's a lot, yeah. to, a lot to cover this morning. Uh, so this morning, the perhaps aptly named Vulture uh, published an article <laughs> about the making Christ. of Red Dead Redemption 2. Well, we'll get to it. Look, look, okay? Like, I, I can only speak my truth. I can only say what I feel. True. So uh, the Vulture published an article about the making of Red Dead Redemption 2 called How the West Was Digitized by Harold Goldberg. And it may have been one of the least well-considered things that Goldberg has done, at least since he tried to get people to pay him $100,000 for an expanded version of his League of Legends article for Playboy. Uh, Anyway, while on Mondays we usually like to chat about the games we've been playing over the weekend, this article struck us as, like, so especially tone-deaf that we kind of had to tackle it immediately and maybe hogtie it and run it the fuck out of town. There's a lot to dig into here. But I think the main thing that's been getting passed around Twitter uh, that I'd like to start with is a section where Goldberg describes the kind of schedule that people working on Red Dead Redemption 2 have been keeping. Uh, And the passage goes like this. Uh, The polishing, rewrites, and re-edits Rockstar does are immense. Quote, We were working 100-hour weeks several times in 2018, Dan says. The finished game includes 300,000 animations, 500,000 lines of dialogue, and many more lines of code. Even for each Red Dead Redemption 2 trailer and TV commercial, quote, we probably made 70 versions, but the editors may make several hundred. Sam and I will both make lots of suggestions, as will other members of the team. And I think that raised quite a few eyebrows around here. Uh, To to start with, just the the hour figure uh, quoted. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think we, you know, the Rockstar spouses, the, there's a Rockstar as a company has a a sorted history in having particularly egregious uh, crunch and work policies, um, especially as their games head towards the finish line, which, you know, my understanding of 
the finish line for Rockstar Games is often, it's not the last month, it's not the last couple of weeks, it's not even the last six months. It's it's something that often starts a year, a year and a half out. Um, and so I think, you know, we've when we've discussed, you know, how this stuff works at different studios and, and all sorts of podcasts, you know, we... We understand that, you know, there are there are lapses. There are times when, you know, you are going to work an egregious number of hours in order to complete a project, especially one that has a, a very specific deadline. Um, it's it's when you start piecing together like a long history, a pattern um, that you start to see, well, is this just the culture? And if it's the culture, what does that say about the games are being made? And what does that say about, you know, what is or isn't our responsibility as players and as consumers like to participate in that culture when it's so brazenly put out there, right? Like this is, this is, the Housers don't do interviews. They don't do profiles. They don't do press. They, their games differently than other developers. They, they largely let them speak for themselves and they sort of recede um, to the back. Um, I think that allows them to dodge a lot of criticism um, by not be becoming figureheads. Um, but at the same time, the fact that, it, it, you know, a writing duo who has an enormous amount of influence on the industry um, can make basically make whatever they want and chooses to usually never talk chooses to have this like said I think that should give us a lot of pause that that's what they that's one of the things they wanted out there in the open yeah there's a passage one of the things I came away from from this piece and I know we're sort of focusing on the the labor right now but one of the sort of overarching themes of this piece that uh, kind of spoke out to me uh patrick i think you rightly mentioned that this doesn't this piece doesn't really tell you much uh it doesn't really say much uh and i also think it's instructive like <laughs> it's very instructive uh getting the sort of political worldview and the kinds of things that are said in this piece uh by by the housers kind of shows you that oh yeah uh if, if you were if you were curious at the level of satire in their games, you know, we've talked about this quite a bit in our Red Dead, uh, Red Dead Redemption 1 podcast recently. Great game, but... American classic. <laughs> yeah, I know how you feel about it. Uh, if you were worried, if you were wondering if like their politics or, or their worldviews actually aligned with the content in their games, it seems like it sure fucking does. I, I want to read just a little tiny thing from pretty early on in the piece. Uh, okay, so... With fame comes annoying obligations, and as Dan has observed by proximity to celebrities he's worked with, quote, lots of girls who only want to speak to you or have sex with you because you're famous, and in exchange for that, you give up your whole soul, unquote. Rockstar hasn't had a booth at E3, the nation's biggest game convention, which Sam considers, quote, a big sort of willy-waving exercise, unquote, in over a decade. On the company's website, they refer to themselves as, quote, impressionable idiots on a mission to entertain unquote it's it's sort of like oh so they really are the people who make the kinds of games that they make the games that do speak for themselves in a way and it was sort of instructive to be like oh okay yeah irish really was their idea of great satire <laughs> basically yeah the um proximity to stars or something part of that line also just like made me crack up because it's like the or so i've heard uh <laughs> but also like there's this like puritanical value streak betrayed by that too like of course obviously you know having sex with somebody for the wrong reasons uh, as i deem them costs you a piece of your soul yep. um yeah sure it does boy what transgressive games we're about to get out of you yeah uh, she put but, a horcrux on you by by stealing your semen like what the fuck? uh 
But yeah, it's but I think the article is kind of full of weird passages like that, weird offhanded observations and admissions like that. And I think a frustrating thing about it is there's a lot of points in this article where you kind of want to stop and say, like, hold on. Like, sorry, what was that? Can you run that by me one more time? I was thinking a lot about that um, Evan Osnos piece we talked about last week on Waypoints, where it was the profile of uh, Zuckerberg trying to sort of wrestle with uh, sort of what Facebook has become and his, his role in it. And I think that article does a good job of like, for instance, we the thing we cited is Zuckerberg sort of makes this offhanded statement about uh, how he interprets the history of Caesar Augustus. And then the article like, you know, sort of pauses pauses you there and like gives you some context for why that's kind of a weird thing to say and what it, you know, by by implication, what it kind of says about Zuckerberg to frame things that way. I don't think that ever really happens in this article. This article seems frustratingly credulous and uncritical every time that uh, one of the Housers kind of says something that should, at least for me, and does come across as a record scratch moment. I mean, there's a couple of different interview tactics, right? And and so, like, one way that you can do a profile, one way you can do an interview is you can choose to essentially not push back too much on the subject's words and allow them to speak for themselves for better or worse, especially if you think it's going to be the kind of person that will just kind of go and they'll essentially – you know, like the terminology, you know, they'll hang themselves, right? Like let their own words like do the damning. Um, but often uh, that is paired with editorial and writing that, you know, highlights that, underscores it. So it's like if you don't want necessarily, I think it's cowardly that this piece doesn't push back on the 100 hour thing and ask for like a more thorough uh, examination of that. Um, but even if you're to say, okay, we're just going to let him speak and then. I'm going to counter that with or, or surround that with data and context um, to, to put to put a, a proper frame around that. Like this piece doesn't do that either. You know, there are there's a there's a there's a bit later uh, in which um, it, the the criticism of the way women characters are portrayed uh, across Rockstar's um, whole catalog. Um, and there, there's something I don't have the exact line in front of me that like, oh, on this one's doesn't seem like it's going to have a problem with it and then just kind of like aimlessly lists off a couple of characters that are going to be in the game that may or may not have a dimensionality to them that allows them to be true agents in the story and, and the world but it doesn't actually do what you want it to do which is like okay Red Dead Redemption 2 is not that game's not out like we, we haven't played that game I know that you know the author you know plays six hours of it but as a for someone that it's you know mentioned the piece six hours of access to uh, at least one of the housers, you know, what you would hopefully want of that is like, okay, well, what went wrong with those other characters? Like, let's talk through some of the other characters that uh, have been under criticism in previous Rockstar releases, because, I mean, that's what I want to hear. Like, whatever you think about the housers, Rockstar games, the, the, the games that they make, like, they are enormously important cultural figures who have an unbelievable influence on the industry. And the if you are granted that kind of access, like there is such a deep responsibility to to use that responsibly and to try and get us a better understanding of like who these people are, why they make the things that they do. And I guess that's what I was, I mean, there's all a lot of things to be frustrated, uh, you know, in this piece. But I think what I'm like disappointed, you know, like disappointed dad is that like it was, you know, how many other people are going to get a chance to do this? And I don't feel like I came away with interesting insight into 
the culture of Rockstar, the 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 the, the morality of the the Hauser brothers, like how that translates into the identity and politics of their their games, like I, I there's a lot more I wanted to know, and this piece didn't. It raises a lot of questions, but then doesn't necessarily like it claims to have answers, but like I don't felt I don't feel like I came away with answers in the in the piece itself. Yeah, it, it feels very much like. It feel and I I can't speak uh, for the writer, but it feels very much like someone who was given access and is just excited by that access and didn't really do much with it. Well, there's uh, a passage in this that even like so there's a weird passage in this um, toward the end of the introduction. Uh, Goldberg writes in August. I received an email from Sam Hauser, Rockstar Games president, who writes, "We've poured everything we have into uh, Red Dead Two. We've really pushed ourselves as hard as we can." And I don't know, there was something weird about the, like, just mentioning that, like, Hauser's emailing him personally back in August, and we're in October now, and this this profile's running. Maybe the, the thing was already in the works, and they were just emailing back and forth, but there's this weird, like, why Harold? You know what I mean? Like, where did this come from? That's that's the part That's the part of this that, like, is there is there a relationship here with the Hausers that, like, you know, goes back to previous uh games i don't know but the, it's that it's kind of offhanded line that makes me wonder like well is there a chance that goldberg was like the right messenger for the type of you know interview the hausers wanted to give can you imagine like dia writing this piece like can you imagine somebody who is critical of rockstar or critical of some of the work they've done I get it i mean of course there's there's the uh, the honest answer that they would never be given access right like a, a person who genuinely has shown sort of some criticism for the type of work that they've done would probably not be given the access but imagine a world i mean I, you <laughs> in know, which I, yeah I, I do i do want to say like uh uh i don't know like harold's like mindset going to this piece i think part of what's missing here right is there's a lack of one of the things that evan osnos's piece does really well is it not only does it talk about Mark Zuckerberg, it talks, the, the author injects themselves carefully into the piece to help you understand their mindset about how, like, when they would or wouldn't push back on things or how they would how they would frame questions and, like, the way the, the subject would respond. And I think there's lot, lots of reasons to, to, to criticize this piece and what it chooses to and to not talk about. But I think it also could have, like, let's say... Maybe there is a way you know, being charitable, right? Like extremely charitable. Like maybe maybe there's a world where like this stuff did come up, but like there weren't any good answers, right? Like the 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 houses were shifty about it, or didn't choose to address it, or no commented it. Um, that's on that it's on the responsibility of the reporter then to like say like, look, these were the I was looking to answer these questions. Like the subject didn't engage with them, and so maybe there's a world where that that happened, and then the answers weren't there, and then so they just go, didn't go in the piece, but. Then it's inexcusable because you should, as a reporter, at least mention that like that was a subject you tried to tackle and just couldn't. You can't force someone to give you answers, but you can then go talk to other employees, you know, or, or do try and do the work. I mean, yeah, it's just mm, you know, you're right. Like someone like that is not going to get access, right? Like p- journalists are picked very selectively based on like their past history, the kinds of questions they ask. Um, um, different companies handle that in different ways, and they're going to be far more selective, especially when they're not doing gauntlet-type interviews like at, at an E3 or, or something like that, where you're just going to be subjected to all sorts of reporters from the U.S. and Canada and Mexico, you know, all you know, internationally. Um, 
Like, th this was chosen very specifically for a very specific reason. We may not be able to wholly understand uh, those reasons. Um, but, man, is it just, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm just frustrated. Yeah, I, there's, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I, I, there's a part of this where I, I would love to dig into how much folks at the top of studios, at the heads of studios and the heads of publishers, how much are they actually paying attention to things like, Game Workers Unite, uh, you, you know, fledgling unionization efforts or the conversation around labor and games. They have to be aware on some level. But I, I, I do remember there's a, uh, this year. There's a line yeah. in the piece. You're, you're, you're making me remember this where uh, yeah. it specifically calls out that they like, employ tons of SAG, SAG after vote. Yep. Like, like as though that's a that's good. Right. Like that's that is good. But yeah, how. How you have? How do you square that with your own employees? Oh, right. I didn't even think about that part. Right. I just I connected the dots on that right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it feels God. There are there are piece, little bits and pieces here that just feel like, oh, in the editing process, somebody who is maybe a little bit more aware of this stuff. Very early on in the piece, uh, there's an example of like, but the people who are loyal to the Housers, they sure rode that ladder up, and it's like a woman's name who's mentioned first as if like, oh, here's the corrective to all the, the sexism in these games is like, well, you know, a woman rode, you know, went up the ladder quickly. Like there's a few areas in this piece that feel like, oh, this was, this was, mm, this was put in there to, to kind of show, uh, you know, a, a bit of a corrective. But yeah, I, uh, to my original point, I remember going to E3 this year and uh, interviewing some of the folks who are at the head of the ESA who also had like this, interesting you could say perspective on sort of unionization efforts and and sort of like we're not up on sort of the conversation in a lot of ways or we're sort of dangerously behind the conversation in some ways and that's i do wonder how how much do the housers think of of this sort of stuff if they're if they're throwing around quotes like the hundred hour labor or sorry hundred hour weeks as a badge of honor still Clearly, what what are they thinking about this? Like, wh where are they with this? Are they, have they paid any attention at all to labor efforts in, in games? Like, it feels weird to me because it feels like, how can you not be aware on some level mm. of some so of this? So, I, I, like, my reading that quote, though, I don't think yeah. they think they're talking about, I do not think they're aware they're discussing labor issues. <laughs> I think when they're saying that, they're talking primarily about themselves and, like, obviously there's people being pulled along that fucking 100-hour work week with them. They're talking about, like, other people are involved. We have lots of feedback for them. So there's people, like, working with them. But honestly, I think when they say that, that's one of those, like, dumbass things you say to yourself <laughs> that, like, you think makes you sound cool. You think yep. <laughs> it makes you sound like a badass. And you don't know what you just revealed about yourself. And that's kind of how I read that remark, is this idea sure. that... You know, well, we're in the trenches here. You know, I'm killing myself to make this game 100 hours a week. That's kind of how I interpret it. And I get it. Like, I think we've all had those ridiculous projects we've worked on where we've probably gone way over the line of what is healthy and responsible. And there's kind of a perverse pride you take you take in that. In part because you kind of have to do that just to psychologically square the ledger with yourself like yeah this is worth it uh but also like it does kind of make you feel like a badass when you have put in 100 hour weeks on something you really love and care about and you're 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 proud of the output like damn like damn look at what i did and i could barely sleep and i could barely like string two sentences together and i still fucking crushed it and that's still not a good thing even if you're just speaking for yourself but i think what what gets 
what gets missed here, um, and I would have loved to see this sort of put to the Housers, is that it's your thing. You know what I mean? Like you're the you, like you own this. This is you're you're the boss here. But a hundred working a hundred hours on something is a very different proposition when it's somebody else's vision, it's somebody else's project, it's somebody else's. Uh, vested interests, royalty payments, you know, et cetera. It's a very different proposition when, you know, you're working there for a salary and you're not going to get the same material benefits down the road. You probably don't have the same level of like creative input. It's not your thing. It's a job. And that's where I would have really liked to see some pushback. Well, who's working 100 hours? Who's with you on these 100-hour work weeks? What do they get to do? Trying to, there was a quote going around from a former um, GameSpot news editor. They were linking to because Take Two actually got asked about Strauss Zelnick, the CEO of, of Take Two, who owns uh, Rockstar. Uh, Brent, okay, Brendan Sinclair. We're going. If any, someone has some, something else to say for the next like thirty seconds, while yeah. I look up this quote. Um. Yeah. Like I think the other aspect of this, you know, Danielle, in that quote you mentioned. Um, this idea that oh they're still just a yeah they're they're just a bunch of silly boys making games on a mission to entertain, and it's this again like wanting to have it both ways like so many things remind me of this fucking uh, Zuckerberg article we we read last week but this idea that because you can remember the days when you were kind of this uh, you know outlaw effort you know you were you were ro- you were a bunch of rogues blazing your own you know blazing your own trail through the industry. <laughs> Uh, because you can remember the days when, like, it was new and it was rough and it was, and you were just getting started, that somehow you can blind yourself to how things have changed. You can blind yourself to, like, the cultural and economic force you've become. And you still use the language of, like, the startup to justify your own obliviousness when you are, like, literally decades beyond where that's okay. Yeah, move fast and break things. Oh, we broke democracy. Whoops. Oh, we broke game industry. Good practices. Whoops. You know, it's very, yeah, completely. 100% agree. Do you have your quote, Patrick? Or should we keep yes. going? Yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. Twitter just closed it. Hold on. I'll, I'll get it back in two seconds. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Brendan Sinclair, who used to be at GameSpot and now is at uh, Games Industry Viz. Um, so there was a, a, a one of the Take Two's quarterly calls earlier this year, um, and, and Brendan was on it, um, and he said, uh, so I'll quote from this piece. Uh, when asked what Take-Two is doing to ensure the sequel to Red Dead Redemption isn't also producing a sequel to the Rockstar spouse controversy, uh, Zelnick said the company is, quote, really proud, uh, end quote, of its work practices. Quote, we have a hardworking company. It's a privilege to work at our company and our labels, and I believe that our work practices are sound and appropriate. It is a very busy time, but it's a time that people are anxious to participate in, and I stand behind it. Um, which really doesn't say... Any anything, um, you know that, that that's not like a particularly introspective reflection on uh, Rockstar, but uh, or, or Take Two. But that's probably this is just a gut. I, I, this is not be sending reporting. My guess is Take Two is like really hands off with Rockstar and basically lets them do whatever they want. They they have they're the reason that company didn't go out of business and um, continue to be the foundation, even as Take Two has kind of figured itself out. So that's a lot of the head of take two's tiptoeing around not wanting to piss off their chief creatives is, is my read on that as opposed to any sort of like deep read of how they should, should or shouldn't be handling 
the labor practices at at their main subsidiary. Yeah, there's that had a strong whiff of people know what they sign up for. It's a yeah. passion driven industry. You get to work on a Rockstar game. Isn't like that's that's payment enough. Yep. Obviously. Name Come how on. many people have worked on name some people who've worked on Rockstar games that are famous. I can name two. No, sorry, I can name Benzies too, because that whole lawsuit. Uh yes. but like that's I, I think that's the other that's the other part of this is I just don't that bargain seems perverse to me. I, I think there's there's I can understand the pride in like contributing to something uh, larger than yourself to contribute a small part to to a greater work, um, but man, I don't know the, rock, the Rockstar games in particular just seem to so completely everything is subsumed into what the Housers made and their vision for the project, and I just don't know that. I don't know that anybody gets the the same benefit out of it. Like the the I guess the only other person who really jumps out in my mind as somebody who like contributed meaningfully to a Rockstar game was um Michael Hollick, who was the voice of Nico Belich. Um mm. and the right, reason- and he fa- he famously had a labor dispute with Rockstar yeah. after uh 4 in which he thought it was bullshit that he di- uh, I I'm yeah, you know, I maybe get royalties. the details he here. Got he got royalties dollars for his entire work on uh, he seemed to not quite understand the scale of like the success this game could have and i mean granted like you know four and five were, were enormous games five especially um but yeah like did, did he sue i can't remember did, he just did like a new york he he did, like a new critiqued. york times profile right yeah yeah and yeah so he, he made a public stink about it and at that point they just I don't know if they were ever going to go back to like Nico Bellich as a character for uh, expansions, but they certainly didn't after that. Like Nico just kind of vanished <laughs> uh, from yeah. the world. Weirdly, I also think Nico is probably their most successful protagonist. Like the one yeah. that I felt is probably the best characterized and the best uh, portrayed of any of their characters. But it stands out in my mind because I think this was back in GTA 4. He's like quite rightly making the point that. Uh, he put a ton of time into that game, and his total pay, I think, was around $100,000, which sounds like a lot until you factor in, like, how much time was put into it. Um, and I think there's also just a fair issue to be raised there of who does get residuals. How are those How are those distributed? Um, this is this is why, this is in part why there was a strike. I'm not sure that uh, SAG-AFTRA still got the most favorable terms on that stuff. Um, so... I don't know. I just I'm very skeptical of this notion that somehow working on a Rockstar game is its own reward. Um, I can't speak for people working on them, but it wouldn't. I would find that a hard bargain uh, to strike for me. And and going into that, any company you work for in America, there's the the sort of added issue of things like, oh, we don't have healthcare in this country. We don't have a nationalized healthcare system. We don't have some of the protections that perhaps some people in in Western Europe or even you know. Uh, some countries in the world have like it, it always does feel extra fraught in particular countries and that's also not talking about the labor practices that they have in in other studios that they have around the world like what what are the animators doing in a, a studio in a, a different country you know like I, I can't speak specifically to any of these uh, particular studios but there is an issue there as well of like oh okay you've offloaded 300,000 person hours of work to 
this studio over here and and sort of like what are you doing to them too like there 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 are so many issues here there are so many issues of like who is treated fairly who is paid fairly what does that even look like and that kind of goes into okay what would uh, an equitable and fairly produced open world game of this scale look like right what what does that look like in terms of labor what does that look like in terms of would it take another two years to make uh, you know like it, it's it is a very difficult question to kind of ponder, and I'm not a business person, so I can't answer any of those things. But it does make me think always, like, this isn't worth it. Nothing is worth a person, like, losing their mind or losing their life over, you know? It's not worth somebody losing their spouse over. It's not worth somebody losing their family over. Like, no no game, no matter how amazing it is, is not worth, like, a whole bunch of human beings being utterly miserable and maybe losing things in their life because of it, you know? Yeah, I, and I think, and that is what we were talking about when we we're talking about these sort of extended crunch periods. A um, hundred-hour work week is like borders on unfathomable to me, just in terms of how much time you're spending at work. Like, I don't, I don't know how that is productive. Even like, uh, like when I've pulled anything, as I approach like an eighty-hour work week, usually at a certain point, I just turn into a zombie. Like, literally, just, like, start, like, just zonking out in front of my monitor, and, like, hours will pass and nothing has happened. But I've been, like, working. Like, I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know what that actually gets you, but I do know that when you're working that kind of time, that is where you start to run into, you know, a lot of different uh, issues. Uh, you know, emotional, psychological, physical. Uh, that's just a deeply unhealthy uh, amount to work. Um and it's frustrating that there's just so much credulity shown in this piece. So much, you know, taking things at face value. So much, um, I don't know. It, it's a deeply, it's a deeply flattering profile in a way that just fucking frustrates me. Like, you know, even setting setting the stuff aside, Goldberg's piece also just seems really deeply fucking impressed that like Dan Hauser has a reading list like genuine like genuinely this the this piece has this kind of like there's basically a holy shit passage uh when when Hauser's listing the the books he's reading uh Dickens Henry James Keats Zola Conan Doyle like it's this sort of like also what does that even mean right yeah like, so right. That, like for the 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 general audience that's reading this like Okay, those just sound like a bunch of author names. Like maybe you've picked up on one or two. Like maybe you've heard of Dickens, but like my guess is, me like most people don't know what any of that means. So it comes across as impressive because it's a bunch of authors, and most people don't do any reading anymore. But like again, I'll keep going back to the Osnos piece. But like like the brilliant part about that passage um, is that like it allows the 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 person to speak and then wraps that in context. And what you want there is like okay, what does it say when what is that 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 the, the literary uh, history? What does that mean? What does that mean for the influences that you're seeing in Red Dead Redemption Two? Like, what can you pull from that list to tell me, the reader? Like, what am I to take away from that? It's fine that it, to just list that off, but then you need to follow it up with okay, and that suggests or hints at or like do you know do some of the work for me to help me understand what even that possibly means, other than just being a list. But. I'm not sure Goldberg's your guy for that because Hauser says there's no greater character in the history of literature than great expect and this is bracketed great expectations and bracket 
uh, Uriah Heep. Well, Uriah Heep's from David Copperfield. Um, so, like, I'm, I'm not sure Goldberg, like, it, like, again, like, a little detail like that, people fuck up. Like, it's, it's easy yeah, to sure. miss something like that. But at the same time, it, at the end of a passage that is basically like, holy shit, this guy read a book. Fuck! Look at this book. Look at this reading list. Uh, then that kind of mistake again makes me wonder: is this is this profile in good hands? Is this is this person sort of guiding me through the world of the Housers and their work? Really going to be positioned to do anything but but flatter them? And uh, I think let's also let's let's also remember that there are other people involved in the creation of piece like this. Like this is also on the editors at Vulture. Um, you know, a good editor. I've written bad pieces. I've written pieces with bad angles, mistakes, bad takes. But a good editor guides your hand back to re-examining, rethinking, reshaping, pushing back. And we don't know how this piece was written, edited, published. Um, but and, and Harold is a he's not new, right? Like you know he's been doing this for a long time. So you know the, the, not a case in which uh, someone who's new to the game making some amateur mistakes. Um, you know, it's also a failure on, on you know, the editor side of, like, someone stepping in and saying, like, whoa, 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 like, hey. And a lot, a bunch of this isn't just, like, oh, Vulture doesn't run a lot of gaming pieces, right? So it's, like, maybe they would miss some some stuff. Like, there are basic reporting 101 just notations of, of things that just aren't aren't here. So, yeah. I don't know. We could probably talk about this for another hour, but we should probably – we should talk about games we like or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last thing, last thing I will point out is, um, Vulture is also the outlet that last month, uh, ran a profile of Soon Yi Previn, uh, Woody Allen's, uh, wife who sort of went off giving the, her side of the story and, and kind of going off on Mia Farrow and, uh, you know, by extension, Ronan Farrow and the allegations of abuse that have been sort of out there against Woody Allen for a long time. Uh, so I forgot about that. Yeah, you're right, Patrick. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not just a writer. There's an editorial team behind this, uh, yeah. and that's also worth considering. Um, anyway, we're going to take a little break here, and you're going to hear something definitely probably won't be problematic. Uh, it'll probably be a good piece of content, a piece of advertising. It'll be, it'll be great. Uh, maybe read by me, maybe read by uh, – is that Donald Sutherland, the lemonade guy? I think it's Donald Sutherland, or a guy who sounds like Donald Sutherland. Sounds like him. Either way, uh, enjoy whatever is about to hit your ears. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So anyway, uh, video games. <laughs> anyone play them this week? Anyone, anyone encounter some good, good video games? Hell yeah! I've got a review be running on the site today for a game called Astrobot 
uh, rescue mission. Um, yes, Sony is still making VR games. Yes, VR still exists, even though most people have moved on from it. Um, and I'm even someone that has not touched the any of the three headsets that are in my house since uh, Moss, which is a game that came out also for PSVR, although it's now on uh, Vive and Oculus, I believe, and it's really worth checking out. A, a really wonderful adventure game. Um, and uh, Astrobot uh, is not a game that was on uh, my radar. I had I did not know it was coming, which seems like a failure on Sony's public relations. And uh, perhaps uh, that it, it, my type of game is not one that I would even be aware was around. Um, and as I, I write in my review, uh, the only reason it kind of got on my radar was because I saw a tweet kind of floating through social media that was like, uh, this is slightly apocryphal. Uh, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like, oh, Astrobot is the Mario 64 virtual reality, which is like a real, I mean, that's a lot. You know, Mario 64 yeah. changed the course of video games, defined so much about the transition from 2D to 3D, um, even beyond platformers in a way that uh, to what you are suggesting there is is a lot. But the, hy- the hyperbole got my curiosity. And as someone that played 20 minutes of Assassin's Creed Odyssey, took a deep breath and went, I don't have the energy for two of these. I'm going to just wait till Red Dead Redemption 2. Um, I was I need I was like, I, I need something else. So like, what else is out there? And I was like, that sounds curious. And so uh, I pulled out all my cables. I got that all lined up. I actually like redid my setup so I could do VR easier in the future. Um, so hopefully I'll have like a smaller hurdle to, to get on it. And uh, yeah, the short version is that no Astrobot uh, Rescue Mission is not the Mario 64 virtual reality, but um, it does feel like a VR spiritual successor to Super Mario 3D Land. If you put the Nintendo logo on this game, I think people would 100% buy it that Nintendo made it. I think it has their special touch and polish and curiosity and spontaneity and creativity and fun. Uh, it is absolutely worth borrowing someone's VR headset. It is absolutely worth digging yours out. I had just an amazing time. Uh, with it uh, before uh, for like the 10 or so hours that I, I spent with it and I would highly recommend uh, anyone chase it down. How is it, uh, how does it perform? Because like sometimes when I play, play like PSVR stuff, it can be really choppy um, that it seems to be like hitting the limits of, of what the system can do. Uh, how did this one uh, generally hold up for you? Uh, so I'm playing on a pro, I should say, which uh, there are uh, some tangible benefits uh, in VR uh, if you're if you're playing on, a, on pro hardware. Uh, but I've read some reports that it, this game in particular does not have any real performance differences on a on a base level PS4 uh, versus the PS4 Pro. Um, so that that was not an issue. Um, I I have generally not had a problem with nausea and things like that in in VR. Um, d- d- nothing was exposed that way here. Um, I think what's interesting about Astrobot is. Uh, like one of the other things I read about in review is like sort of this fundamental question that comes up with uh, like almost every VR game is did this have to be in VR? How much of this is driven by uh, you know the funding for this game was because we need content for VR and so to find a game and you know make it work with a VR helmet or like is this a game that is trying to think about what like what verbs are available to us in VR? What, what are ways of reconceptualizing games in VR? If you were to take VR out would it be a lesser experience? And I think Astrobot, um, like, makes the case in its design for VR being integral to the way it works. So, like, the basic, like, control setup is that you have this little robot you're controlling with the analog sticks and the buttons. Um, you are, uh, you have various tools, like a, like a, 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 a like, a shurikens that you're, like, shooting by a, a 
touching on the touchpad, you have a grappling hook um, that you're aiming with like the dual shock. So it's using the camera to kind of sense where you're pointing. Um, and then you have your, you know, you have the, the VR headset on in which you're looking around. The, the camera is on a, uh, a forced track. So it's, it's set up by the designers. You're not um, looking around um, with any buttons, but you can look around with your head. But the way the game set things up is that uh, by having a fixed perspective in, um, in Astrobot, you're going like, uh, it's kind of like a tunnel. So you're not going left to right. You're going front to back. Um, and so you're, you're always kind of going forward. Um, and the game will set up the camera in weird ways where like, you kind of have to like, you know, like turn your head around in order to like properly, like get the, the character in the right position to move forward. It's like really smart about understanding that you are like an, an actor, um, as with the headset, um, and, and it makes you kind of like crane your head, not in painful or awkward ways, but just in tricky and playful in fun ways that take advantage of the fact that you are in a fundamentally different space than than you would be if this was, you know, just on the television screen as opposed to in a headset. God, I really want to play this so badly. And I've been a, a VR sort of... I, it's not like I hate the idea of VR, but it, there just have been so few things for me that have made that leap that have actually been a better game because of VR. And, and it's a pain in the ass to set up. It's it yeah, is. wear a helmet. Like I mean, the whole thing yeah. is a like I'm a, I'm a I would call myself like an advocate and evangelist for VR. Like I was in it early, but like even me was like ugh. Like I want to just sit down for like an hour to play a game. It's like oh, I don't really want to. Is that USB cable missing? Because I stole it for something else. You know what I mean? Like, ah, oh, it's just a whole thing. But yeah, like we're going to, I'm going to stream this for, we're going to do this as part of the, our stream uh, later this week, which we'll have to, we probably should have plugged at the start, but we'll plug at the end. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> we're, so we're going to stream you know? for 36 hours uh, later this week. Um, yeah. But uh, I'll make sure we'll we'll do it on, on Friday when you're going to be around because I, I definitely want you to, to see this because uh, I think uh, I think you'll get a kick out of it. I think it's a game that uh, really does, um sort of justify its VR usage. And it's just like really playful with it too. Like there's, there's a microphone in the, in the PSVR and uh, there's just one sequence where or there's a couple sequences where like there are these flowers that uh, kind of like react to your head. And it's just like a, whatever, like it's just a playful thing. The environment's doing. And, and it's acknowledging that like, when you look at something uh, it's, it's reacting to what you're doing. Um, but uh, there are certain ones that if you go up to them, like, you can blow on the flowers and you can watch like the petals like move away. Like it's just, uh, it's just a really, so yeah, yeah, it's very, very charming. And in a way that reminds me a lot of the best parts of like this team at Nintendo that has made like the last, starting with Mario Galaxy, like this, it's been roughly EAD, the same. I think. Yeah. Or, yeah. And, it, and there's been this very, those, this, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's been with this one specific team that's like made Galaxy, Galaxy 2, 3D Land, 3D World, and then uh, Odyssey. And uh, they just, 3D Land and 3D World, like, they aren't, like, the ones that people talk about a lot, but they are, like, in my heart of hearts, like, some of my favorite um, uh, of the Mario games, so much as I love Galaxy and Odyssey, but, um, so it's been, like, really wonderful to play this, because if you liked 3D Land, I think you're going to get a huge kick out of Astrobot, because it feels very much um, taken out of that, that vein. It's, like, very small, tight uh, levels that have a lot of secrets, and those secrets are really fun to find. I hate collectibles. I think they're bullshit um, most of the time. But this is a game that makes the journey of finding them like just a, a true joy uh, to the point where I've done most of them. And I don't know if I'll go back and do like the last sweep, but um, I really enjoyed my time finding that stuff because it was rewarding in and of itself, as opposed to just uh, being in pursuit of a trophy, which I that that stuff does nothing for me. 3D Land is such a perfect uh, point for this, too, because that's one of those, uh, similarly, one of the games that actually really made use of 3D in a smart mm -hmm. way, in a way that actually enhanced the game 
Uh, so yeah, such a good point. And yeah, I might actually like 3D Land and 3D World better than better than the Galaxy series. Don't tell anyone. Oops, I just did. I definitely like them more They're than so Odyssey. Good. I like Odyssey yeah. a lot, but there was something about ah, three three land, three D world. Like I just I I'm hoping that they'll port those. Three D land is gonna lose something in the transition because I think like like you, I agree the three D yeah. was not uh it's not that it'll be a bad game, but I thought the three D added something tangible to the experience. Um it was one of the first instances where I was like, Oh, three D can be something that doesn't just add depth for the sake of adding depth. It's like in a platformer, oh shit, depth means something because you are judging jumps constantly. And the game was aware of that. And it there were there were there were ways that they'd use perspective where you you know, you the 3D was just like working in concert with the level design. Um and so when that game inevitably gets poured into Switch and sort of some sort of like 3D land, 3D world combo pack, um, it'll lose something. It'll still be an okay game, but uh yeah. at the very least, hopefully 3D World will get like the proper do it is deserved because I really really liked that game. I played through it like four times. Like for yeah, real. it was yeah. it was so. Incredible. I want another excuse to to go through it again, and a Switch version would be. Hopefully, it happens. I, I want that game to get its its due praise because unfortunately, people have kind of dropped off the Wii U at that point. Yeah. So Astrobot, people should play it. <laughs> and yet somehow that segment ended with a request for something to come to Switch. Uh, you know what? I mean, <laughs> Astrobot on Switch when? I'm gonna do Why it. not? Yeah. Uh, Danielle, do you get up, up to any mischief this weekend? I got up to a whole lot of uh, Assassin's Creed Warrior Princess mm-hmm. this weekend. <laughs> we, we already talked so much about this, but oh my God, holy shit. I, I didn't expect to like Odyssey at all. Yeah. And we're talking about problematic open world games that I'm sure had some labor issues. Again, this isn't like something... I, I have any uh, specific knowledge about, but open world yeah, games. Yeah, I, w- I will say, like, you know, this is worth saying as an aside that, like, we haven't, you know, for as much as, like, Ubisoft has a certain bread and butter type of game, uh, and I'm not saying things are perfect there, but, you know, there haven't been mass reports of, like, th- those games being awful to make. Well, maybe, maybe because they actually staff appropriately. But also, yeah, they, they, maybe who just, knows what happens in outsourced, like, satellite studios yeah, uh, yeah, that's, outside yep. like Montreal. Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's, it's absolutely true that it could just be underreported or not yet reported. Just, I just thought it was interest, an interesting aside that we, despite how many of those games they have made, we haven't seen reports like that. So maybe that just means we should be paying closer attention. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. We could pay But we can also just enjoy games. And, and yeah. so, Danielle, I'm curious. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, okay, stop with your, stop with your caveating. Like, yeah. would, tell us why you like this game. I just honestly love it because it makes me feel like I'm playing Xena. It makes me feel like I'm playing as Xena in Xena's world. And a lot of it is weird little subtle touches. Like the tone is so goofy and campy in a lot of the like exchanges you have with people, whether it's like appropriate or not. Like there are times where like very early on the game and I'm still in the first island because all I'm doing is fucking around. I'm just doing every side quest. Cause like, did I you don't, climb I the, don't care. Did you climb yeah. the giant dog? Not yet. <laughs> How did you? It was I'm the first sure thing. I, will. I was like, are they gonna, like, because first there's a giant nude Zeus on the island. I was like, are they going to fig yes. leaf him like they did in Odyssey? I'm just curious. Just curious. Just conducting a little experiment here it's on uh, Kephalos. <laughs> uh, and then I was like, oh shit, looks like, uh, looks like there's a whole situation. And I was like, yep. they're going to let me climb on, yep, they'll let me climb Zeus. God with a rod. Yeah. You know? pre- <laughs> God oh with a rod and a hot bod. Yeah. That's what's going on. Well, at least right we there. have a podcast title. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I know good. we're not supposed. It's good. To, I know we're not supposed to make body humor jokes. It just rhymed. Well, I, and think, so, I think we're still in bounds on that. We're still okay. We're still okay. All right, good. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it's the tone. It, it's it's in keeping with the tone. Like Xena was the campiest show of all time. Like it started out. I've been I've been doing a lot of Xena research. I haven't been watching the show again, even though I will. I'm sure. Uh, but I've been listening to this podcast called the Xena Warrior Podcast that recaps the show. It's like a modern show. It's from, you know, last year and this yeah. year. And they're going through the whole It's series. not a 1990s it's podcast. Right, exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, and it's wonderful and intersectional and the, the people who do it are great. Uh, and, like, the show started as, like, a, you know, a little straighter in every way. It, like, a little straighter-faced and a little straighter. And then, like, by the second season, it was all camp. It was so queer and queer-coded because, of course, you couldn't show as many things on syndicated national TV in the 90s uh, as you as you can maybe do a little bit more of today. But the game really, like, supports this tone. I really, really, really want to talk to someone on the design team there and be like, Secret Xena fan? Who's the Secret Xena fan? All right, who who is it? Because uh, it's so goofy. So many of these interactions that you have with people and like side quests and everything are just so goofy. And Cassandra herself, the the main character, I don't even care who the the dude is, whatever. Because I'm playing a Xena in the Xena game, um, has like the same physical like body language that Xena would have in the show. Like a lot of the like she's got these you know broad shoulders and she's very muscular and she kind of like. It does this like snarky little eye rolling all the time. It kind of kind of smirks all the time. Like it's this sort of, oh, I'm doing bullshit for you, villager, but like good humor about it. Like a little snarky, but also yeah, kind of happy to do it. Kind of happy to run around and help people because you know she's uh, atoning for her life as a as a warlord, basically, as the premise of the show was. So I'm just having the best time with with yeah yeah Xena Warrior Creed. It's it's a good time. Yeah, I don't know that. <laughs> So I think for I'm not sure Cassandra seems pretty morally unconcerned by a lot of things a lot of the things she's up to. And I think that's because a lot of the decisions you're going to make throughout the game, you're still offered the same menu of options each time. So like, do you want to do the like kind of monstrous thing? Do you want to do the like goody two shoes things? Uh do you just want to bang this person? Uh those those are kind of your three options uh in most dialogues. But <laughs> I think what that does lead to is this sense of, like, I still don't really have a strong sense. Cassandra is a funny character in a lot of ways, and she does have, like, a funny demeanor with a lot of the people she interacts with. But there's not a ton of sense of, at least for me so far, of the character really developing. Because I think they still have to keep Cassandra in this slightly neutral space where she could just as likely, like, stab somebody uh, to wrap up a quest as a, as to like help them, um, she does evolve over the quest of the course of the mainline quests as more things like come to light, but definitely it does start to feel like um, Cassandra's a mystios. She's a mercenary, and like you know, no job too small. She will she will hoover up every last drachma in Greece uh, and <laughs> do whatever it takes to get it. Um, but she is, she is a pretty enjoyable character and she has some fun interactions with the people that, uh, surrounds her. I saw that you, you know, I think we both handled that conversation with the boyer on the, uh, island, uh, pretty much the yep. same way, uh, where yep. she's kind of being a shitty client 
And Cassandra just, like, snaps at her and, like, takes her head off. Yep. It was great. And it's like, oh, my God, I I can't. I can't piss off Cassandra. Oh, 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 oh. She just, she kind of has this wonderful, she backpedals, like, ten steps when that happens. It's kind of wonderful. And I should be clear, like, I'm role-playing as Xena. I'm doing all the goody two-shoes shit. So it's like, of course, you could totally play Cassandra a different way. And I'm not sure that the writing is like you said, like, necessarily really supports one reading more than the other. It's I'm just, I am having a very particular experience with this game that might not be everybody's experience, for sure. Uh, But I'm pleasantly surprised, I guess, that I'm able to have that experience with it. Did you get with Odessa? Yeah. Not yet. Have you met Odessa? No, I am, like, for real? Like, I'm doing the thing I did with, like... She's she's no good. Okay. She's not right for you. Oh. She's not right. I don't think so. <laughs> but what if we just, what if we're just. She's just the buddies? worst. She's the worst. <laughs> like the first person you can romance is like the like definition of small town limited options. Like just oh. the shittiest person. Like I'm sorry to Odessa fans out there, but like, <laughs> oh my God, she is so much. Nobody else is on Bumble that night. You gotta, you gotta make two. Yeah. Ancient Greek Bumble, you know. Um, so I spent the weekend, I, I don't know, I was, in this, I was in a weird mood and I wanted to play something like Oxenfree, so I decided to play Oxenfree uh, this Good. weekend. I just ended up kind of shot it on Saturday. I just spent most of the day playing Oxenfree, and shit, I really liked Oxenfree. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, I did too. Way more than I thought I would, and it's... I don't know. There was something I just really enjoyed about the fact that it's a game of dialogue that as opposed to, I think a lot of more just exploration driven games where you are like sort of a passive observer of like different tableaus and like you get information downloads sort of thrown at you from time to time. It was cool to sort of have the space where you are always a listener, at least in the conversation that people are aware of. And you also have a lot of different, like opportunities to chime in and sort of change the direction of a conversation. And I think that really worked particularly well because in general, I think the, the writing was pretty strong. It was a bit affected, uh, but it was, it was pretty strong writing and I really did enjoy getting to know the like ins and outs of these characters and their relationships. Yeah. I found that game to be like, entirely charming and just very atmospheric the the music's really yeah. great in in oxen free in particular um i never got around to i, I didn't realize how, once i finished it that like you're su- kind of supposed to play it twice to get the yeah. full understanding of the story i never got I around to I doing it a second play time that twice. The, you know what i mean like that's, that's a lot that of was my that right that was sort of my problem was that uh one it didn't end with like, hey, if you really need to play it twice, like be a little more exp- like I, I shouldn't have to go read that somewhere. That's like, hey, you need to play it twice to really understand what's going on. Um, and yeah, it also seemed like you were gonna go over a lot of the same territory a second time. And I was like, I don't. And whatever. I got enough out of my first run that I did. I didn't feel. I, I didn't feel empty yeah. having just no. done it once. Um, I, I thought actually the story comes to a a pretty satisfying conclusion. It's just the oh the sound design in that game is uh, just really really good and creepy. Uh, in, in a way that I, I yeah, I, I really enjoyed. Um, I was kind of disappointed that at no point did I get to, like, throw Ren off a cliff. Um, <laughs> Fair. Like, I don't know, that guy, that guy sucked. 
a lot, like quite a yeah. bit. I, I would say, just like your friend who never listens to you and doesn't ever mm-hmm. seem to think of anyone but himself, but like is just there and is your friend. I couldn't, I couldn't really handle uh, too much, too much of Ren. I felt the game liked him more than I did. Um, <laughs> but I think the thing I really dug about this game is just a. It's a very sad game in a way I find very relatable. Right, just the just the sense of something has happened to these characters in the recent past and nobody's really dealt with it or how they feel about it or how they feel like they contributed to uh, what ultimately happened to your character's brother uh, who died sometime before the start of this, this story. I think one of the cool things this game, one of the cool like things this game does is it gives you things that are either ambiguously like flashbacks or maybe like, different explorations of different possibilities of how things could have gone in the past. Um, And each time you're kind of, it kind of keeps changing what you think about what you know, right? Like I think something this game gets across very well is that I think there's a tendency for all of us to assign ourselves way too much responsibility and agency for anything that fucking happens. Like that, you know, well, in my story, like, this person is a character, and if only I'd done things differently, their story could have had a different ending, right? And I think something this game does quite well is, as it adds complexity, it starts to show, like, in sharper sharper and sharper relief, the way all these other people are their own characters and their own stories, and it is not, you know what I mean? Like, they have their own motivations and reasons for doing things. And there's, it's not that their story, it's not that their characters in your story, it's that your respective stories overlap and they touch each other and they influence each other, but they're not yours to like control or move around. I think one of the cool things that Oxenfree is doing is it plays around with that temptation, not only to sort of put yourself at the center of your recollection of events, but also spend too much time thinking about like, well, if only I'd done something differently, everything could have been better because that's not how life works. Boy, those themes sound like something Danielle and I are going to talk about on a Waypoints on Wednesday. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Pro tip, go watch a couple episodes of The Haunting of Hill House before we record Waypoints. God, yeah. All right. Um, so we'll just take a quick dip into the bucket here. Uh, we got an email from Drew. Uh, Drew writes, hi, all. I'm curious how you think about playing games or spending time with media broadly. Do you schedule it into your workday, or is the expectation that nights and weekends are the time for that? Does it change depending on how you ex- how excited you are about the item? Broadly, do you think of it as work or play or something in between, and how does that relate to your sense of journalistic labor and fair compensation for that time? Um, which I think is a good time to ask this question because we've got so many irons in the fire. Uh, so, <laughs> Danielle? Yeah. Uh, I definitely think of it as work time unless it's something i'm very excited about in which case it does fall into that shadow area of this is fun and as much as possible i try to also make it social time especially if i'm watching something now that we are focusing so much more on on film and tv and and sort of other things you know that sort of broader category where you know uh, performances and things like that i i prefer to go to those with a friend or a date or you know make it some kind of social thing um and then that yeah and it's like oh i can use this for work like, for example, I, I watched A Quiet Place not with the expectation of, of making it like, oh, this is a work thing. You know, like I, I thought of it in that framing, but it was more like I watched this movie 
with a friend and then thought like, oh, this is a good waypoint. Like it, it becomes something you can kind of use for, for multiple things. And I also personally, because I, I also teach, I also use, I, oh my God, I've done two live lectures on a quiet place at this point. Like one for specific like framing devices and one for like um, editing techniques, basically, and like slower paced editing and how that built tension. So like I use all parts of the, of the Apple. Or I probably used the mm. wrong phrase there. I'm sorry. I all parts of Does whatever Apple it is. have a lot of parts. It seems like it's got a, you know, it's got skin and it has a uh, pulp. It's a pretty thin layer of skin though. <laughs> kind of, the skin kind of goes in with the, the apple it meat. does. All right, I made a bad metaphor. I'm sorry. I'm Danielle, <laughs> and I make bad metaphors. But I try to use things in multiple avenues of life as much as I possibly can. Playing games, I really try at this point, especially uh, as as a as a a person who is now dating again. Uh, I try mm. I try real hard to to make game time like part of my work day and like schedule a couple of hours for gaming as much as possible. Things that we're you know covering or I'm interested in covering. Uh, and certainly there's going to be some weekend and evening time uh, devoted to that. That's It's kind of the nature of the job, but I try not to uh, let the balance get out of whack with that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's unfortunately there are – this job does not pay equitable to the amount of time that you put into it. Like it, There's kind of just like no way around that. Like I think Waypoint as a website, we have tried to go out of our way internally to have policies in which we – try to make sure we're acting responsibly and having other people call out when we're not living up to the value, you know, the idea being that if we can't run a website in which we're having reasonable work hours, uh, both, you know, during the workday and outside the workday, then, you know, it's basically for, if we're going to call out labor practices in public, then, you know, our house should be as cleaned up as possible too. Which to be clear, we weren't great about that at the beginning. <laughs> well, no, you were launching we, a website, right? Yeah. Like, but I think you know that's right. Like the arc of of how Waypoint has evolved in terms yeah. of that specific point is how you want that stuff to evolve, which is like yes, that that stuff wasn't being handled particularly well. But cough, cough, uh, Danielle and Austin. Um, <laughs> uh, and I was kind being very fault. conscious. I like I didn't let that happen to me. It was easier for me. I work from home. I have a, like a hard out at five thirty because I have to go pick up my kid. Um, yeah. But. Uh, you know, there are certain things, like, there are t- plenty of times when I play games when I'd rather do something around the house, when I would rather read a book, when I would rather watch a TV series. Like, there are plenty of times when I am putting in time that should be bankable, that I should be being paid for, but I'm not. And that's just not – games take too fucking long to play, right? <laughs> like, that's like, a huge part of that as well. Um, and parts of that we can get better at. I think Waypoint is like in terms of work-life balance, like the best place I've ever been at because we've made a conscious effort to talk about that, to, um, to work on that point. But, um, there are certain elements that are sort of like, I'm never going to get paid overtime for playing, you know, six hours of a game over the weekend. Right. That's just not, that's just not going to happen. Um, um, we don't, we don't live in that world. And so certain parts are baked in, but I think it's what we try to do is try to, know that those parts are baked in and then how can we make the work week, you know, the the best it can possibly be. Yeah. It's, um, none of this feels like for the most part, none of this feels like work in the same way that like working in a content mill years and years ago felt like work or like moving (laughs) kegs around a warehouse, uh, felt like work. Like none of it, like, 
none of it feels that way. And so there's always an element, like, you always have to be, I always feel like, I have to be cautious how I frame this stuff. Because, like, I've worked genuinely shitty jobs. Um, oh, God, I just remember the golf course. Anyway, I've worked genuinely shitty, oh, shitty yeah. jobs. And, like, my worst day at Waypoint, I would take over pretty much my best day <laughs> of any one of those jobs. Right. Like, like right, pretty right, much. Right. Yeah. Um, but I do think there's something there's something to this about, you know, how does it change your relationship to these things? And I, this has been on my mind a little bit because, particularly in the last couple of weeks, you start to have really weird looking days where, you know, you're running down your to-do list and you're like, well, I got to watch a Purge movie this afternoon. I need to check out one <laughs> yep. episode of Maniac just so I know what Natalie's going to be talking about. Uh, got to read this New Yorker thing. Um, oh, I need to make sure I share everyone links about like what an Alan first novel is. So, so they're up to speed. Um, oh damn. Like red dead redemption is fucking huge. There's a lot of that. I got to play for one one Um, and that begins to like, to, like the, sort of the, the pie that is your time begins to vanish pretty quickly when, when you're slicing it up, uh, that way. And I think the start of this week I came in and one of the first things I mentioned to y'all in the, in the chat was like, I feel kind of disconnected from the games I should be playing like right now today. Like I feel a little bit disconnected from the release season uh, because I've been spending so much time with this other stuff. And that just puts you in a bit of a strange place because it does change your relationship to the stuff. For the most part, it's really enriching. I really enjoy doing stuff like the Purge Cast and talking about like yeah. these, you know, these different topics for for waypoints. Uh, but at the same time, what you lose in this, for the most part, is um, those large swaths of like unstructured like free time or play time. And maybe that doesn't exist. Period for you, Patrick, uh, with you know no. having having a kid. <laughs> I used to play games on the weekends. That used to be the time. And now the times I play games are Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I get maybe 45 minutes in the morning once everyone's off to what they need to do in the morning. I get my chores done in the house. And then it's however long I want to give myself after my wife and kid go to sleep, which is usually an hour and a half, two hours. But the weekends are just like, they're just fucking gone. Because like the, the tour, like especially with football season, right? So I lose, when my daughter is sleeping, that's when like, Hey, you can do whatever you want. Uh, I lose that. Now that's when I'm just uh, deeply sighing, uh, wondering if Cleo Mack is about to twist his ankle and be out for the season, <laughs> sort of deep sighs. Uh, uh, and on Saturday, it's like, oh, well, I wanted to, like, it's the the temperature's going down. Like, this is my last chance to, like, put some grass seed out for, like, some gaps in my lawn. And it's like, by the time I do all that, it's like, oh, well, she's up. I don't have time to play games. And it's like, oof. So I just. Yeah. I, um, I, I think, and that's why, like, Saturday was weird. I think one reason that I enjoyed Oxenfree so much is it was the rare game that cast enough of a spell that I just... I played one game for pretty much the majority of that day. Like, I spent, like, four or five, maybe six hours just playing one thing. And that was, like... And it was, like, really liberating. And it wasn't, like, for work. It was just... Right. I wanted to play it. And I wasn't obligated to do anything with it. It was just for me. That was really fun and exciting. Um, there's probably it's healthier overall if there's just more of that stuff uh period but uh that's that's kind of that's kind of where we're at uh right now and yeah and it does change your relationship to stuff like sports too uh because i love sports but it does feel like particularly on sunday afternoons you made a you know you're is this how you want to spend your time you don't know that much of it 
It's a four-hour commitment. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> it's a lifetime commitment. Yeah. Hey, you got you to gotta do the pre-show. You got to do the post-show. I mean, when I'm watching, like, a fight, like, when I'm watching a UFC fight, especially, like, a big car, you know, one of the numbered fights, I actually like the fight nights better sometimes. And also, like, Invicta FC... Sorry, this is Danielle Sports time. I'll, I'll just be brief with it. But like Invicta is a women's professional yeah. uh, um, MMA league, so I love watching those cards. But like, yeah, that's a several hour commitment. So if I can't get a friend to watch it with me, therefore I get to like write it off as social time. I do. It's like taxes in my head sometimes. Like, all right, this can be a social thing. This can be a social thing. This can be a social thing. And then there are the things where like, oh, none of my friends ever want to watch fights. I have like three friends who also enjoy uh, combat sport. Well, uh, other than like my training partners, of course, those are other people. But like nerdy friends who also would play a game with me. It's it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Got to sit out a couple hours for that. And then I try to also make, uh, you know, because I'll, I'll feel guilty, I also try to be, like, grading while that's happening, like, in commercial breaks. It's like, oh, time yeah. to get an assignment in. Time to get an assignment in. And, yeah, it's weird. When also, then, you're probably not, I like, one of those two activities is probably getting short shrift a little bit. Like, Well, that's why it's, like, commercials, I'll yeah. mute it, and then do the grading, and then yeah. back to the volume. I try to I try to make it make sense. It's, don't have my I life. Find it- I was on the, I was on my ambulance grading the other night in between calls, too. Yeah. It's just. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, before we wrap up for the day, I wanted to remind you that we at Waypoint, along with our awesome community, are doing a 72-hour live stream event this week to raise money for the Florence Project, a nonprofit legal service organization dedicated to helping people in immigration custody in Arizona. Uh, to tell us a little bit about that, we have the Florence Project's Amalia Luxardo, their development and research director, who is good enough to talk with me about their efforts and the challenges their organization is facing right now. Uh, so hear me chatting with her in just a moment. And I'm here with Amalia Luxardo uh, from the Florence Project. Amalia, thanks for joining us today. No, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so I think one of the things a lot of people listening to this are going to be keenly aware that we're in the midst of this uh, national immigration crisis, though I think even crisis is maybe not the ideal word for that uh, with, with the way detention policies have shifted and immigration enforcement has become much more aggressive. Uh, but I think it would be helpful to know a little bit about how Arizona and the Florence Project fit into that larger context. Sure. I mean, crisis, crisis especially the summer, was certainly the right word. Um, here in Arizona, the, the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project, we're the only organization that provides free legal and social services to detained men, women, and children across the entire state. Um, so we have offices in Phoenix and Tucson and in Florence, and that's intentional because that's where the detention centers are. The detention centers for children are in Tucson and in Phoenix. The detention centers for men and women are in Florence and in Eloy. Um, and Florence is uh, notoriously known for being a prison town. So um, when you talk about how we fit in um, into this whole uh, immigration scene, it's it's because we again we're the only organization that provides these sort of services to the adults and the children that are held at the detention centers across Arizona. And when you're talking about um, you know when people think back about what happened this summer with family separation, we were the only ones that that provided those services to those families that were separated on the border. In fact, you know when we were talking about 
when people were talking about numbers all over the news, our offices alone, just in the Arizona border, saw 659 cases of family separation, and we're talking about only parents and children. There's other sorts of familial separation, um, you know, aunt, nephew, aunt, niece, grand, grandparent, grandchild, and it only, and it also doesn't address the family separation that happens inside the state of Arizona or inside the nation as a whole. When you have mixed status families, for example, if a parent was undocumented or you have a citizen children, child, rather, um, when the raids were happening on earlier in the year, then those were cases of family separation as well that just went unnoticed or fell under the radar for whatever reason um, until the crisis of this summer. And to give you some context with these numbers, last year we saw around 179 cases of family separation so between the numbers of last year in total and oh, what wow. we have this year to date it's almost a 400 percent jump just because of that zero tolerance policy that was implemented that is a uh, horrific spike um when we talk about like Legal assistance, legal services, uh, the type of uh, due process that, uh, you know, detained people are, are getting. Can you take us through a little bit what that looks like, uh, you know, from from either your end uh, as people providing legal aid or from people uh, in detention who need it? Like, I'm, I'm just kind of curious, you know, from the perspective, because I think a lot of people don't know, like, what it means to be in this system and what is happening. So can you talk us through a little bit about what that day-to-day -day looks like? Sure. Um, so there's, there's two parts to that question, I think, the day-to-day -day and what the system looks like. The immigration system is not treated the same way as the criminal justice system, even though um, the individuals in that system are, are almost criminalized, right? And so um, because those two systems are different, they're not afforded legal representation. So you have individuals that for one reason or another ended up in immigration detention that are treated like criminals, and yet they're not afforded attorneys like they are in the criminal justice system. So we right now work in a system where there is no public defender and organizations like the Florence Project fill that gap. And if we are not here, then they're not afforded representation unless an attorney out of their own volition decides to go to the detention centers and, and take a case. Um, and so really, if, if it weren't for nonprofits like ours, they wouldn't have the access to, to the tools, to the resources, to the representation that they need in order to get themselves out of detention and remain here safely in the United States if that were an option for them. Um, so when we talk about the day-to-day -day as to what our staff does, uh, we have our legal assistants and our attorneys um, who have gone through a very selective and, and serious background check that are then um, get, give them access to go into the detention facilities. And they do what's called Know Your Rights presentations or legal orientation presentations. And essentially they'll meet with, um, with groups of children or adults and give them a breakdown as to what their rights are here in the United States, what they have access to, if there's anything that we can do. And then once that is done, that's usually about two or three hours, then we meet with everyone individually to do um, specialized legal assistance assess, assessments with them or better known as intakes. And so we, they basically tell us their story, why mm -hmm. they came into the United States in the first place. And a lot of children are abused, abandoned or neglected a lot of adults, a lot of the adults that we um, that we encounter are LGBTQ individuals, um, people that are fleeing 
torture, that have been kidnapped, that have been raped, a lot of really serious um, violent situations that they fled from home country. And then at that point, um, our attorneys every single week, uh, along with the legal assistants, do what's called a, a joint case review meeting. And, that, and they make assessments as to what case we can take because to, to give you some context, in the last two years, we saw 25,000 individuals, mm -hmm. and on our staff, we have around 50 or 60 attorneys, and there's no way that our 50 or 60 attorneys can can represent 25,000 people. We just don't have the capacity to do that, and so we have to be really strategic and selective as to what cases we take for full representation. Is this like legal triage that we're describing here, just kind yeah. of like where can you do the yeah. most good with the uh, least amount of resources? Right. That's that's essentially what that is. Um, and so some cases we take on for full representations. Several cases we also work with um, pro bono attorneys um, in Arizona and across the nation as well. And then um, for the people that we can't connect to a pro bono attorney here or we can't take on for representation, we work with them pro se. And in the legal world, that means you self-represent. And so if we give them enough resources, if we give them the education and the knowledge and the paperwork that they need, there are some clients that feel comfortable and empowered enough, because that is our goal, to empower everyone um, with the education and the resources that they need, then they go in front of a judge on their own, excuse me, with our, with our support and um, fight their case the best way they can. And so those are essentially um, the options that we're working with as far as our day-to-day -day goes. And in addition to those services, and we also have a social work department that provides them with services, including connections to medical care once they're released or um, doing, doing release planning while they're in detention, what's going to be happening to you, where can you be connected to, what are the resources that are going to be available to you for the kiddos that are released, you know, school enrollment, um, access to medical care again, uh, the, all of those things are really, really important, especially when you're talking about an incredibly vulnerable population that has already been through a lot of trauma as it is on the way over here only to be re-traumatized again into the detention centers. And so getting access to all of those needs is really, really important while they're in detention and again once they're released. Um, I am curious, like, have you noticed any shift in... Uh, you mentioned you, you broadly we'd sort of divide this into two cases: people who were sort of already living in the United States, uh, you know, without documentation, and then people who are coming over here uh, seeking asylum and sort of being detained, you know, at the border. And, and I'm curious, like, has the shift is the shift in enforcement the emphasis changed over the last year, uh, or is or is this kind of being applied to you know both groups? Um, well, the shift in the emphasis has honestly has impacted more more so than anything else the individuals that cross the border mm -hmm. uh, the asylum seekers or refugees and things like that um, mostly a lot of the people that are at the port of entry um, attempting to get into the United States because they're seeking safety essentially um, as far and and I and I say that with a caveat that we don't necessarily deal with the individuals that are um, that have been here undocumented right. for a, you know a continuous period of time because again we we just don't have the capacity to do that and so we we are we specialize in serving um, adults and children that are in the actual detention facilities now if those people were to somehow one way or another um, be apprehended by ICE by the immigration authorities, and then they are in the immigration facilities, and that's when we would come in. But as far as as far as our work goes, that's where we specialize in. Um, 
and like I said, in, in 2016 and 2017, um, our numbers total came up to 25,000 um, individuals. 17,000 of those were children under the age of 18. And so far um, in 2018, we have around seven or 8,000 cases, which is, which is a lot less. Um, but it's also because of all the fear that was instilled in, in all of these immigrant communities. And so the, the numbers certainly slowed down in that respect. But as far as our work, that only made it more complicated because there were just so many reinterpretations of policies, so many new policies that were in place, and all of that were just barriers and barriers and barriers um, that just made it more difficult to get our clients out of detention. And so what that meant for us is not necessarily that um, there wasn't a high turnover, but all of these new rules and regulations and reinterpretations intentionally kept people in detention for longer and if there is no bed space there's nobody else to put in if that makes any if that makes any sense so mm -hmm. um when we're talking about the immigration uh, detention system I, we see around 4500 people on any given day and that's because there are around 4500 beds in the state of Arizona for men women and children and so it's one in one out but because of the new policies the the children and the adults stayed in detention centers for much longer periods of time. And so it's not that we didn't have the clients to serve. It's just that um, all of those things made our work that much more complicated and, and made it much more complicated, frankly, to get our clients out of detention and to fight their case uh, outside of detention. Now, when it comes to, um, you know, fundraising and resources, I'm curious, what are the, what are the top things that you need, right? Like what, what are, what are the most urgently needed resources uh, th that you have right now, and and what like what does that allow you to do? Sure. Um, so the number one resource is is always going to be financial support, so that we can sustain the programming. We we grew quite a bit over the summer. We hired between fifteen and twenty individuals just to the response to the family um, separation crisis, and so we have we do have funding to sustain that program for about a year or so. Um, and as, as the director of philanthropy here for the office, it means for me that my goals for the next few years are going to be much, much larger because we just have a larger staff to support. And so um, our, our financial resources are, is going to be the, the number one thing that I'm looking towards so that we can sustain the programming that we have because, again, we're the only organization that does this work. And if we eventually have to um, you know, turn around staff because the funding isn't there, then that means that means for us, we, we serve less clients, right? And that means that less individuals get the services that they need in order to get out of detention and reunify with their families. Um, you know, if you're talking about uh, in-kind gifts and things like that, uh, we're always going to need things for, for children, backpacks, hygiene, um, prepackaged hygiene kits, um, prepaid uh, telephones, prepaid cards to Walmart or a grocery store or something like that, because once once the um, the men, women, or children are released, those resources, right? They they crossed the border with their clothes on their back, and that's it. And they don't have access to anything else. And in large part, once they're released, they don't stay here in Arizona. They go to another state where their family is, and so they get put on a Greyhound bus to that other place with with nothing. Um, and unfortunately, if we don't have the the, the in-kind goods that were donated to us from supporters, then we don't necessarily have the funding resources to give thousands of people those those supplies as well. All right. And uh, we're going to be, of course, like 
flashing a donation link uh, throughout the throughout the streaming marathon. Uh, but if you're listening to this podcast right now and, and want to help out, uh, you know where where can people go uh, to help out the Florence Project? Sure, um, our website is www.firp.org. It's f i r r p dot o r g, um, and you'll have a big donate button there <laughs> that people can go and click. Um, and our and our website is actually really great. We have several client victories there that people can look to, so that they can um, get to know some of the clients that we served uh, through through their support. All right, yeah, don't miss that second R in the URL. So just think FERP and yes. really hold it. That's that's how I'm <laughs> keeping it straight in my head. Yes, uh, and I'm definitely going to be saying that a lot during the stream. Uh, <laughs> all right, um, I guess one last question. You know, beyond just the Florence Project. Uh, where should people like, you know, if people are concerned about this from the policy standpoint, where's the most, you know, where are the most useful places to go to, to apply pressure, uh, to sort of resolve this crisis? Everyone should call their representative. Um, I mean, that's, that's the number one. We've been getting that messaging across through, through our communications department as well. Call your representatives, call your representatives, call your representatives. Um, you know, even if it's on a daily, daily basis, just for a couple of minutes so that, um, you know, they, they know that this is something that is important, um, not only to, to you as an individual, but to the country, really, because family separation is, in specific, it's a, it's a nonpartisan issue. Um, what happened over the summer was, was just inhumane. And no, um, no five-month-old toddler should have been ripped out of their mother's arms. Not, uh, you know, we, we've had clients where there was a 17-year-old deaf and mute child who was separated from their, their mother, and he didn't know until the next day because of his uh, physical circumstances. Um, I myself as a mother of a four-year-old can't imagine what these parents have been going through. And so calling representatives is incredibly important. Um, getting to t in touch with the ACLU as well. Um, I know that we partner with things, with them on things as far as impact litigation goes. And so calling them and doing volunteer work with them would also be really, really helpful. All right, Amalia, uh, thank you so much for spending a little time for uh, time with us. And uh, thank you so much for the work you and everyone at the Florence Project is doing. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you. Thank you. All right, that was Amalia Luxardo with the Florence Project. And we are going to be kicking off our streaming marathon at 12 p.m. Eastern on Thursday at twitch.tv slash waypoint. Uh, we're going to be playing some of our favorite games with some of our favorite people, as well as a few games that let's be real, probably aren't going to be our favorites. Uh, the Waypoint <laughs> team is going to... I, I've seen some ominous topic headers uh, in, our, in our planning docs uh, that, that have me on the edge of my seat. Uh, anyway, the Waypoint team is going to be gathered in New York for this and will be streaming from Thursday afternoon to midnight on Friday, and then we're going to turn the reins over to our community. Uh, but that's going to do it for us here today. And if you can rate and review us on the podcast app of your choice, we'd love the help and may like the feedback. As always, you can follow everything we do at waypoint.vice.com and on Twitter at Waypoint. Uh, Danielle, where can people find you? At Danielle R.I. on Twitter. Patrick? At Patrick Klubik. Our thanks, as always, to Bowen for letting us use the track Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Uh, you can learn more at waypoint.zone slash Bowen. Uh, but in the meantime, Danielle, what do we say to the people? Be good and be good at it. 53 fucking yards. That was Nagy's <laughs> I know. 53 yards. Albert Wilson Patrick. is not. <laughs> Just. 
The, he was good in that game. Trubisky was, he he was, was good in that he game. He was fine. He was he threw he threw one he threw one unwise pass that still wasn't like terrible. But Nagy's Nagy's whole strategy to win this fucker in overtime. Be aggressive. Be aggressive. Be aggressive. How is run the ball three times for like no gain? And by the way, in this game, was running the ball really the safe move for like retaining possession? Really, statistically, no. was that the move? But then to be like, oh yeah, and then all we have to do is nail a fifty-three yard kick, and then we then we win this thing. Just, that was my whole Sunday. So Patrick's in I pain know, it was right bad. now. It was bad. No, I, Rob, I will say. Uh, I have been so apathetic the last during the John Fox era that in some ways it was nice to feel sadness again because I, I couldn't even feel crushing losses because there was nothing to feel crushed. We should about. be five and zero, so and that's amazing. I know, should, what? I know, I know, I know. We should be five and zero, but also we're not five. On to the Patriots. We're not five and zero. On to the Patriots. Yeah, we're gonna find out that Cleo Mack has an ankle sprain and he's not gonna he's gonna be out for six weeks. As we're gonna find out. Right, Don't let's, kick. Let's, Peace. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.